Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 301 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are back in your feed right now because we got to talk about some news regarding the roster for the Duke Blue Devils. We got to talk about the Final Four coming up this weekend. And we have a great interview to tease for you. And it is not the interview that we teased just a couple days ago regarding the entire 2001 basketball team. That's also coming your way. We got so much content. We don't even know what to do with it. It may be the offseason for you, but the Duke Basketball Report is in full steam ahead mode. I, by the way, am Jason Evans, your host this week. I am joined, as I always am, by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Sam, how are you doing today? I either have allergies or COVID, but I do not feel great. So <laughs> if you if you hear any gross noises on the podcast today, those were me. And I also think I'm editing this episode, so it's up to me to get rid of them. <laughs> Speaking of not feeling great, I just got my second shot of Moderna. And so I'm fully, well, I guess in two weeks, I will be fully vaccinated. Um, I am not feeling lousy yet, but I'm sure it will be coming on very, very soon. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be sneezing. Jason's going to be passed out. And Donald Wine, I think, is going to be completing this episode by himself. <laughs> I'm just fine. I'm just fine. Yeah. There you you go. Got two, I got two shots of that. I got two shots of that dolly already. Uh, so Jason, welcome to the club. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, but today I'm feeling great. It's raining outside. Uh, I know we, we used to talk about the weather, but you know, there's been a lot going on. So I was just go back to it's raining outside uh, and but we're talking about some basketball. So let's do it. But wait, hang on, Donald. What about the cherry blossoms? The cherry blossoms were great. They're uh, dope. I mean, the cherry blossoms have bloomed. I went out yesterday, went to the National Arboretum. F- fun fact, everyone comes to D.C. for the cherry blossoms festival. It usually tracks about a million people a year. Uh, but of course, this year, because of COVID, it's still busy, but it's still it's less than a million people. Everyone goes down to the Tidal Basin because that's where the traditional festival takes place. That's where people walk through. That's where you see all the tourists. DC residents go to the National Arboretum, which is on the outskirts of town on in Northeast, has lots of parking, lots of luscious cherry blossom trees and other and other fine trees that you can take a look at. And it's just a peaceful park for you to go. So I did that trip instead. Drove through the Tidal Basin just to say I drove through it, but I didn't stop and walk through. I went to the National Arboretum, took some great pictures, had a great time. Very nice. This has nothing to do with basketball. Not at all. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> but, it's, but it's very topical. It, it's also it's opening day for baseball this week. And I've seen a lot of uh, pictures from the Nationals being a Nationals fan of the cherry blossoms outside of Nats Park. And I'm, I'm feeling, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little a little piece of me is getting getting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm emotional about it. You know, this is yeah, where I'm from. Spring is here. Yeah, exactly. Spring is here. So, guys, uh, let's let's do get to the actual basketball news, which is over the uh, past couple of days, we've gotten word that uh, grad transfer Patrick Tepe has uh, decided to transfer once again. He, uh, he came to Duke from Columbia for a year. It was a weird, strange year, both in terms of COVID and in terms of the performance of the Duke Blue Devils. Um, and Tepe has decided that he's going to, uh, yeah, because of COVID, he gets another year of eligibility and he's not done playing basketball. He's decided he wants to go someplace else. Um, Patrick Tepe played a total of 45 minutes for the Duke Blue Devils this year, um, which is basically he played one game plus an overtime. Um, so not a lot of playing time for him. He accumulated 11 points and 11 rebounds total in his Duke career. So he wasn't a guy who, you know, he wasn't a guy who had a huge impact on the program, but we did hear about him every now and then, especially when, uh, as it relates to Mark Williams. Um, a number of times Coach K mentioned Mark Williams is putting in all that extra work to get better and better. And he was putting in that extra work with coach Nate James. But one of the things that coach K said was 
It doesn't work unless there's someone there battling against you. And Coach K quite often mentioned Patrick Tepe and, uh, and Keenan Worthington were the two guys who were providing competition to Mark Williams and helping Mark Williams get better. So as far as I'm concerned, Patrick Tepe is aces in my book. He did not do a lot on the court, but he clearly was a big help to this team off the court. This is a team that was sorely lacking experienced college basketball players, and he is nothing if not super experienced. Sam, I'll come to you first. Uh, any thoughts, any comments on Patrick Tepe uh, moving on from the Blue Devil program? Yeah, going into this past season, I think we were all a lot higher on Patrick Tepe than than he panned out to be, or as he turned out to be. And I think it's kind of a bummer. I I do get the sense, you know, obviously he he seemed a little outmatched for the most part when he was on the court, but some of that could probably be attributed to the pandemic and the and the lack of preparation. I know that we keep coming back to this point over and over again, especially as it pertains to Duke's performance this season, which overall was was not what we expected. But I think he's just another in a string of players who really would have benefited from proper acclimation time at Duke. And and it's a shame that that we didn't really get to see him blossom in that way. So, you know, I'm I'm bummed about that for him. I do agree with you, Jason, that the, you know, if if we can attribute even 10% of Mark Williams's development to Patrick Tapay being around, then absolutely worth the roster spot because because I think Mark Williams, among everything, was the was the, you know, in one of the enormous bright spots on the team this season. So, uh, but I, I wish Patrick to pay well. I hope that he finds a spot on a team where he can actually play big minutes because he's experienced and he's a big dude. You know, it's not like he looked, it's not like he, he looked like he didn't physically belong on the court um, until the, until the ball was actually moving around. So hopefully he gets a, a spot somewhere else in division one next season to, to really get some minutes for his final year. Sam, I agree with everything you just said. And I'll add to this. I think when, Initially, you were talking about how he just didn't get a chance to properly like work himself into the offense and work himself into the program. I, I thought he was great, in, in, as Jason said, in helping Mark Williams develop. And if Mark Williams develops into the player that we think he will, we will have Patrick to pay to thank for that. But also, the summertime is a really important time for a lot of programs, but it's especially important for Duke. And Duke thrives on using the summer as a chance to get the offense installed in new players new transfers or whatever, as Jason knows, because Jason has a new podcast podcast series comes out that discusses this very thing, uh, return to glory, but he didn't have that opportunity. And it's unfortunate that because of that, he wasn't able to really learn about what it will take to be physical in the ACC. I think he's going to be a great, you know, guy that he could, he'll probably move on to a mid-major program somewhere. I know, I know he's from Charlotte, so maybe he moves a little bit closer to home. He did, went from Columbia down to Durham. Maybe he goes closer there, but uh, I, I wish him. Da- I'm, I'm, ca- I'm calling Davidson right now. Davidson, Patrick, you, you, by know. the way, Patrick Tepe, a guy who clearly, I mean, Columbia and Duke clearly values education. Although does Davidson yeah. have grad programs? I don't know. Davidson may be a problem. I didn't even think they about might, that. but Charlotte does. I know that, but the, the issue that the point is this, he left Columbia four years with a degree. He's leaving Duke with a degree and he's leaving with the respect of everybody in the program. I, I wish him well. And, and I, I wish it worked out better for him on the court that we would see that we would see more playing time from him. But I think if his lasting legacy is that he helped big Mark Williams become the player that he is, that is just as great as anything that he could have done on the court. So uh, I, I'm going to segue us here, and, and you guys are going to be intrigued by this. Uh, the other guy who's transferring is Jordan Goldwire. And Adam Zagoria, uh, who's a noted recruiting expert, recruiting analyst, has a list of schools that have reached out through the portal 
to Jordan Goldwire. And it's a really interesting list. I'm gonna give you a couple of names on it. And when I hit the last name on the list, you guys, I, you're gonna perk up. You're gonna go, ooh, it's gonna lead us on to our next conversation. So here are the schools who've reached out to Jordan Goldwire so far. Maryland, Seton Hall, Loyola, Chicago, Wichita State, good mix of top tier um, uh, mid-majors and power five programs, other names. Uh, uh, Miami has reached out to him. It could be, you know, he could transfer within conference. Washington State, Howard, George Mason, Alabama, Birmingham. And ready? Austin P. Austin P has reached out to Jordan Goldwire, which is kind of confusing because Austin P doesn't currently have a coach. Hmm. But as you probably have heard by now, Duke fans, Nate James, Duke assistant coach, Duke associate head coach, I should say, Nate James is widely rumored to be the leading contender to take over at Austin P. Let's go P. Donald, any comments on the possibility of Nate James leaving the staff to take a head coaching job at Austin P? Yeah, I think that'd be a great opportunity for him. Uh, it's good for uh, Duke assistants to be considered for jobs. But the one thing about Duke assistants is that because they are at Duke, they normally only get thrown into the ring for big jobs. You know, we've seen, you know, Northwestern, Marquette, VCU, Oklahoma, you know, Stanford, those type of schools, Harvard. But at the same time, I think that there's something to be said about our program our programs assistant coaches cutting their teeth on mid-major programs like Austin P where they have a chance to just kind of settle in, develop talent, develop a program and re- and develop their own style of coaching. Everyone knows how coach K coaches. He knows how his assistants kind of coach, but I want to see them kind of develop their own legacy. And it's easy to do that off of the radar of some sort. So that, I think that'd be great for Nate James. He would be able to instill a personality in that team. And again, if he, you know, he could use it, Patrick to pay or Jordan Goldwire to kind of jumpstart the program there, but also it's in an area. It's Clarksville. It's right out. It's about an hour away from Nashville, which is a hotbed of recruiting talent. And I said this when Wojo was let go from Marquette, that you want to have your guys in situations where they're in cities or in areas that are a hotbed for recruiting talent, so that it even if the big schools are chopping off the top trees, you can you know you, the lower branches, you can still go for the top and get those players that are diamonds in the rough or you know guys who could really be a part of your mentality and your style for your program. So if, if they go after Nate James, I think that's great for them to do that. And I think Nate James would be great there. Yeah. And, and really quick, you, you mentioned it. Um, look, it would be a natural fit. I think if, if Nate takes the Austin P job, Jordan Goldwire, Patrick Tapay would be instant, huge boosts to that program. Those are both players who I think will, would compete really, really well in the Ohio Valley Conference, um, you know, a, a, a classic mid-major, maybe a, you know, a lower mid-major almost. Um, uh, so I, I think it could be great for, for Nate to bring those guys with him. They certainly know him really well and he knows them really well. But the other comment I would have is if Nate is going to get this job, Goodness gracious, get it soon, get it quick, because the transfer portal allows you to remake your roster super fast. It used to be you had to wait and go through a whole recruiting cycle, and there's all the uncertainty with that. The transfer portal allows you to remake your roster virtually overnight. Um, I'm not saying that Austin P needs to be remade. They were, they were a decent team in the Ohio Valley this past year. I'm sure Nate can coach them up some. But if Nate gets that job, my bet is he's going to want to bring in some new players. He's going to want to hit the portal and hit it soon. Sam, any comments, any thoughts on Nate James? I, I think that your point, Jason, is actually one of the most important factors here, which is that the 
transfer portal this season is going to be much more active with, with so many more players available and teams that are going through coaching searches need to wrap them up quickly on the possibility of, of Nate James and, and now some of these grad transfers from Duke all going to Austin P first on Nate. I think it would be a really good opportunity for him I, to Donald's point earlier about how Duke guys have tended to get bigger jobs coming out of assistant roles at Duke in recent years. I would say, yes, that has been a, a trend, but the performance has not matched. I think the, the hype to those jobs. Now, Jeff Capel could be very successful at Pitt. He obviously has prior head coaching experience. We don't know what Steve Wojciechowski is going to do going forward, but um, Chris Collins has had, has, has not had great seasons at Northwestern recently. He obviously made history there a few years ago, winning a tournament game, but the recent success for former Duke assistants has not been, you know, top tier, I would say. And so I'm, I'm fine with assistants going to take maybe more mid-major type jobs to, to rebuild that reputation. And quite frankly, it might be better for them if they're, if they're getting jobs that are not quite as high profile to build their reputations to then go up to get to a high major job. Cause look, Nate James is not that old yet, right? He's in his 40s, I, th- I think, and he's, he's only like a couple of years older than Donald. He's got plenty of coaching time left. Same thing for John Shire. John Shire is in his mid-30s. If he's going to leave to go take a head coaching job, there are lots of places that would like to have him, I'm sure. So plenty of time for these guys to, to build careers before ending up at big-time programs. And I agree with you that it would be cool to see Nate if he's going to take this job and and, and I, we'd be rooting for him if he does to take some of these transfers, I think Jordan Goldwire is too good to be playing at Austin P. I think that, you know, Goldwire's in this weird state where like he was an all ACC type defensive player this year. He's not that great of an offensive player, but he's certainly to me a power five player and he should be going to play in a power five program that might just be lighter at the point guard position or, or lighter on, on defensive talent because he was playing you know, 25, 30 minutes a game for a team that didn't make the tournament, but had lots of talent on it. And I could imagine him playing 30 or 35 minutes a game for a team that's still in the power five and still can be competing for a tournament spot as long as he picks the right situation for him. That, that last point about Jordan Goldwire is interesting, especially the note, Jason, about Miami being one of the teams in contention. Chris likes is leaving the program. He, you know, he was oft injured, but really the heart and soul of that team and Isaiah Wong, who had an all ACC type of year is also most likely going to leave that program to go there. They have a lot of guys that are transferring out. You know, Jim Laraniega is going to be a guy who wants some defense. He wants some intensity. He wants some tenacity. Jordan Goldwire would be a nice fit for them. I'm not saying that he should go there because that means he's facing Duke at least once next year. But we've seen some of our transfers end up staying in the conference and playing very well against us. But I wish him well wherever he goes. But with the Duke carousel, this is just opening up another door. If you know, if Nate James takes this position or takes another position, there's still plenty out there. You know what happens with John Shire? We of course Wojo is out there. He could float back. Nolan Smith has been getting some uh, interest in being an assistant coach. Uh, not just at Duke, but elsewhere. Remember, he applied, or at least he was interviewed by Memphis before the season last year. So it will be interesting to see what happens with these coaches, coaching decisions and whether Nate James or even John Shire, or even Chris Carwell, who hasn't had a lot of you know, interest, at least in the media, but probably could still be fielding some interest in some offers. If one of these guys goes, who steps in to take their place? How does this carousel involve Duke? Because just like the transfer portal, the coaching carousel will definitely affect us this summer. 
you know, part of all those coaches moving around is how does it impact Duke in terms of recruiting? And uh, you guys have been telling us, we, we put out the survey, tinyurl.com slash DBR podcast survey. We asked you what more content you want on this show. And you all said you wanted more recruiting. You wanted more talk about Duke recruits. You asked for it. We have delivered on it. I'm going to give you a tease now, ladies and gentlemen. We spoke to Duke's top recruit for next year, the number one player coming into the program, a guy who's going to be a huge difference maker for us, Paulo Bancaro. We spoke to him just a short time ago. We're going to bring you that full interview with Paulo later this week, or I should say next week, but we want to give you a little tease, a little flavor of it. And it takes us to our next topic, which is the upcoming final four talking about the NCAA tournament. So before we get to it, here is Paulo telling you about his final four picks, specifically how he feels about Gonzaga. Paulo, I want to uh, ask you one question about the final four this weekend, and I, and I want to bring it back because you mentioned that Gonzaga was one of the schools that you were interested in. And, and I'm not trying to talk you out of going to Duke and going to Gonzaga, but can you <laughs> talk to me a little bit about the the relationship with them. And, you know, I, I know that you're from up in Seattle and, and so Gonzaga is not nearly as far away from you as Duke is. Uh, and yeah. the, just the way that Gonzaga has come on this season and how well they've played, what, what, what do you, what do you attribute that to? And, and, and how cool is that? Yeah, no, nah, it is cool. Um, Gonzaga, that's a program that, that I admire, you know, it was, it was, like I said, it was one of my top schools. Um, and yeah, it's no surprise that they are where they are. Um, you know, they're really starting to get five stars and top players to go there now, which makes them even scarier because they were in the final four and they were in the elite eight and stuff like that before five, they were getting five-star recruits. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's a program, man. It's a machine over there. You know, since Spokane, it's like five hours away. It's kind of a small town, but, but they just, they just, you know, they got a formula. Um, Coach Few and the rest of that staff, they're, they're offensive masterminds. You know, they really understand the game space and you watch them play, they move the ball. Nobody's playing selfish. Um, and yeah, they're impressive to watch for sure. You picking them to win it all this weekend? I got them beating UCLA, but I might have to go with Baylor. I don't know. All right. I don't know. Okay. That's well, going to be class of the Titans, but we'll see. All right. So you heard from the man, <laughs> you heard from Paulo. He likes Gonzaga, but he doesn't think they're going to win the title. He thinks it's probably going to be Baylor. Coming up in just a moment, we are going to tell you who our final four picks are right after this quick commercial break. Okay, we're back from the commercial break, and it's time to talk about the NCAA tournament. We had the Elite Eight games just in the past couple of days, and that means the Final Four is coming up. The Final Four is all set. On one side of the bracket, Baylor and Houston, the number two and number three teams in Ken Pomeroy's rankings of the best teams in the country. On the other side of the bracket, UCLA, number 11 seed UCLA versus number one Gonzaga. The, the Zags have been... Uh, you know, I, I, I can't even say it. The Zags have been made a 14-point favorite in the game with UCLA. They are the largest semifinal, the largest Final Four favorite in the history of the Final Four. I mean, wow. That's good, right? I think that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the, 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 the Baylor-Houston game is basically a toss-up. 
It's going to be a really exciting, really interesting final four. Before we get to previewing the final four, Donald, I want to talk to you because your Michigan Wolverines were right there. Donald, they couldn't score 50 points. They couldn't even get to 50 points. So instead we have UCLA, you know, crashing the final four. We would have had three ones and a two. But tell, tell me about your feelings about watching Michigan. Just one of their worst games of the year, wasn't it? It was, it was, well, here's the thing. It wasn't one of their worst games of the year because they're in the big 10 and Wisconsin still exists. Uh, Wisconsin likes to beat teams 39 to 36. So, <laughs> uh, so that part's still there, but I, I think when it came to Michigan, it was very frustrating down the stretch. Uh, I, I was telling you guys last night that I was really, I was working until 1 AM uh, just doing work. And so I was like, Hey, I'm going, I, I've been working this whole game. I, I have, I'm not frustrated yet. I'm not running around my apartment. I'm going to put my, computer down for the last two minutes and 30 seconds of the game. I should have just kept working because they did not score the rest of the time. At least they didn't, they didn't make a, they didn't make a bucket the rest of the time. So uh, the problem with Michigan is that they couldn't hit baskets on stretch. They were getting great shots uh, and UCLA and Michigan. That was one of the great games of the uh, elite eight in week 16. So uh, I, I'm happy for UCLA. I have some friends that went to UCLA that are ecstatic right now. Again, a first four team makes it to, the final four, I believe it's the fourth time uh, that the a first four team has made it to the final four already. So there's something to be said next year, pick the first four team because they're going to do you numbers. But uh, I think when it comes to Michigan, they still had a fantastic season. They're obviously missing Isaiah livers uh, throughout the tournament. They'll be back. Uh, Juwan Howard has been terrific. And I'm, I feel confident that Michigan will be back next year and be just as strong as ever. So, so guys, you know, I mentioned a second ago that uh, Gonzaga is a 14-point favorite over UCLA, that they are the largest favorite in the history of the Final Four. Do you guys know whose record they beat? Who was now the second largest, but who was the largest favorite ever? I'm going to guess it was UNLV against Duke, just in case it was in case it's relevant to this show. Uh, no, the answer is Duke in 1999 against Michigan State. We played Michigan State in the national, semif- national semifinals, and we were an 11 and a half point favorite in that game. So Gonzaga and we won has, by six. Yes. And, ooh, nice memory there. I, I did not recall the final. It was a, I knew it was a closer than expected game. I remembered that. Uh, so I, I want to give you guys just a few stats, numbers. You know, I'm always the numbers guy. I'm the Ken Palm maniac uh, regarding UCLA. They are the fifth 11 seed to make the final four. None of the previous teams that were 11 seeds that made the final four won their game. In fact, those previous 11s lost by an average of 11 and a half points per game. Basically making the final four as an 11 seed means you're probably going to get crushed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But along the way, you might be George Mason beating Connecticut in the elite eight and, and making all the Duke fans happy. So, you know, at least you, at least you have that going for you, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Pomeroy, Ken Pomeroy gives Gonzaga an 86% chance of beating UCLA. I heard that uh, some other computer models have it closer to 90%. Uh, it really looks like we are going to have uh, a blowout of a game. I mean, you know, that, like I said, the line's 14 points. If, if I had to put a wager down, I would probably put my money down on Gonzaga. They have been crushing teams this tournament. They won their games by an average of 24 points per game. Um, USC is the best team in the nation at interior defense. And they could do nothing to stop Gonzaga's interior scoring. USC hadn't given up more than 36 points in the paint in any game this season. They gave up 46 points to Gonzaga. 
I, I looked, I wanted to check. Gonzaga has really only played three competitive games all year. Only three. Not that they, they've played, not that they've played three good opponents. Right. Or, or three competitive opponents only played three good games. Only three games has it been at all in doubt in the final 10 minutes. On November 26th in the season tip-off, the very first game of the season they played Kansas, Gonzaga led 74 to 71 with 10 minutes left. Now, by the five-minute mark, Gonzaga led by double digits. <laughs> they led 90 to 78. But with 10 minutes left against Kansas, that game was still in doubt. The next game they had that was remotely co- close on December 2nd. Again, we're going back to December. They played West Virginia. Um, West Virginia actually led them 56 to 55 with 11 minutes left in that game. The game was tied at 67 with seven minutes left. And at the five-minute mark, Gonzaga only led by four. They ended up winning by a fairly large, a decent margin. But that was a game that was close. The real close game. The real game that Gonzaga actually had a chance of losing this year was the uh, West Coast Conference Championship game to BYU. BYU actually led that game 68 to 61 with nine minutes to go. Do you know what happened at that point? Gonzaga over the next two minutes went on a 12 to nothing run. <laughs> got the brakes beat off him. I watched that. I remember watching that game, and I think we were texting during that game. I was like, "Hey guys, BYU is about to do something." And then, like, I feel like two minutes later, I was like, "Nope, never mind. You can change the channel." There, <laughs> Gonzaga is back. Right. Never mind. Forget it. I mean, it, it's. Gonzaga is a huge, huge favorite, and uh, both in that semifinal game and and to win the whole thing. Most of the experts now are saying that you know that you got to make them at least a sixty percent favorite to win the national title, become the first team to go undefeated since Indiana in nineteen seventy six. And meanwhile, just really quick, I want to say that Baylor Houston game, Ken Pomeroy expects the final score in that game to be seventy two to seventy one. He makes Baylor a fifty one to forty nine percent favorite to win that game. It's the true definition of a toss up, and it is a great matchup of strengths against strengths. Baylor is the best three point shooting team in the country, and Houston is one of the top ten teams in the country at preventing threes. Houston has the best effective field goal percentage defense in the country, and Baylor is one of the top ten teams in the country at effective field goal percentage. So it is, you know, Baylor's great offense against Houston's great defense. I'm really looking forward to that game. Sam, I'm going to go to you now. Time for some final four picks. What you got? You, you got to, I mean, I say final four picks. We're picking Gonzaga. So, yeah, <laughs> so I had, what you got in the other game? I, I, I told you throughout the tournament that I had basically terrible picks across the board in terms of like getting the right upsets. Like I, I, I picked Loyola over Illinois and that is like the only upset that I correctly called that was of any consequence, but I did have Gonzaga winning the tournament. I had them like, that was the first thing that I did when I filled up my bracket. I still feel very strongly that that is the right thing. And, and I think that Gonzaga is going to win definitely going away against UCLA and likely uh, to win by a, by a decent margin against either Baylor or Houston. I'm going to take Baylor. I I think I was underselling them early in the tournament and, and they've been just incredible down the stretch here to say nothing of, of Houston's great performance, but Houston just hasn't played the same caliber of teams that, that Baylor has. And, you know, Baylor looked excellent against Arkansas the other night. So I'll have Gonzaga over Baylor in the, in the championship game. That's my, that's my picks for this weekend. Sorry to UCLA fans, but man, no one's beaten Gonzaga. (laughs) Donald, what, what, what's your pick? So in the, UCLA Gonzaga game. I'm going to give it to Gonzaga, but I think UCLA plays them the closest of any team in this tournament to this point. In that, that only means they only win by like 16 or 20. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I said what I said, and I reserve the right to be right. So, uh, but I also in the Baylor Houston game, I'm going with Houston. 
Houston was the team that in my in my first bracket, I said that Houston would make the championship game against Michigan and would lose to Michigan in the final. Of course, now Michigan's not in it. So I'm picking Houston still because I still think in the battle of two Texas teams, you know, Houston still gets a lot of disrespect from people in Texas and they are playing like it in this tournament. And they will especially want to do that against Baylor, a team that has been one of the top two teams in college basketball all year. In the final, give me Houston. Go Cougs. They're going to win it. Whoa. They're going to win it over over Gonzaga. They're going to win by five. And I reserve the right to be right on that too. And I also reserve the right to be wrong. So if I'm right, dbrpodcast at gmail.com, email me and and make sure you know that I'm right. If I'm wrong, dbrpodcast at gmail.com and let Jason and Sam know that I don't worry about what I was saying, that I was just making that up. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to be boring. Um, I think that after a tournament with a ton of upsets and other craziness, uh, it's going to go according to plan back in uh, September. Heck, to say nothing of October or November, everyone said Baylor and Gonzaga. That's who I think will be playing for the national title. Um, And I do think uh, Gonzaga is going to win it all. The reason I like Baylor over Houston is I just think the, the Gonzaga guards, as good as Houston is on defense, those Gonzaga guards, especially Davion Mitchell and Jared Butler, those guys are just ridiculous. Davion Mitchell may have the quickest first step of anybody I've seen in college basketball in quite some time. That dude gets downhill fast. And I, I just don't think Houston's going to be able to stop it. So uh, so I, I got Gonzaga and Baylor in the matchup that we've wanted all year. Remember, guys, they were supposed to play back in December and it got covid out. There was too much COVID on, I think it was on Gonzaga that they had too much COVID. And so they weren't able and to play. And that game was going to be in Indianapolis at Banker's Life uh, Coliseum and or Banker's Life Fieldhouse. I'm sorry. And the Marion County, Indiana, the county there in Indianapolis was like, absolutely not. This game will be played. This game will not be played because like two of you guys have COVID. That is unacceptable. Uh, so it's interesting now that they have been in Indianapolis this entire time and have a chance to play for the national championship. Yeah. So th- those are our final four picks. Like Donald said, feel free to email us and tell us how wrong we are. We'll probably be wrong. We've been incredibly wrong about this bracket <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> the point of this program is not for us to get the picks right. Being wrong in the NCAA tournament bracket is every person's God-given right. So let us exercise it. Guys, we got one more topic before we go, um, and, and it's a really important one. Uh, and it's happening right now. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, and what happened today could have more consequence, more importance on the future of college basketball and college sports than anything that's gone on for quite some time. There was a Supreme Court case, the NCAA versus Alston, um, where uh, the NCAA is asking the Supreme Court to overturn a number of lower court rulings that talk about how athletes are compensated and whether or not athletes can be compensated for more than the cost of attendance. Uh, This is a really, really key, important thing. This is the Supreme Court deciding whether or not the NCAA's amateurism model will continue to exist. Uh, And I want to, uh, the the story that's coming out is that it looks like the NCAA is in real huge trouble on this. (laughs) Uh, There's no way to say it other than that. You can sometimes read the tea leaves. The, The Supreme Court is hard to figure out, but you can sometimes read the tea leaves based on the title of questions that the justices ask of the lawyers and the questions that were asked of the NCAA's lawyer were just 
unbelievable. I'm going to give you a couple of them and then Donald, I'll get to you because I know you've got to want to talk about this and you are a practicing attorney. But Brett Kavanaugh told the NCAA lawyer, he said, quote, it, it seems the schools are conspiring with their competitors to pay no salaries for workers who are worth billions of dollars. I, I mean, <laughs> he just laid it there. He laid it bare right there. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, asked a question. She said, why does the NCAA get to define what pay is? Because the NCAA has argued that they're paying these athletes through scholarship. And she's like, why do you get to define what pay is? Uh, Neil Gorsuch asked a question. He said, said to the NCAA lawyer, you're worried about student athletes getting $6,000 a year when the TV contracts are worth billions of dollars. $6,000 a year is not a lot given the injuries and the inability for these athletes to pursue their you know, selected course of study you talk about $6,000 like it's an exorbitant amount. It's not. A billion dollars is a lot of money. I mean, it was, and those are the conservative justices, and it was mostly the conservatives who, who said this stuff, but the liberals got in on the act too. There was a great quote from Alana Kagan, and I just want to really quickly, she, she said, this seems like price fixing. She said, schools that are natural competitors have gotten together in an organization and use their power to fix athletic salaries at extremely low levels. Donald, sure doesn't sound like the NCAA has any chance of winning this case. A am I right? I'm going to hold off on answering that question until I get through this because I think there's a lot that you have to unpack. There's still more that I think we need to talk about. You, you mentioned Justice Kagan and her, her statement to the NCAA attorneys. Now, the response from the NCAA attorneys was even worse because they basically said, and I'm quoting here from, uh, from people who were in the room, our own view is if you allowed them to be paid, they will be spending even more time on their athletics and even less time on academics, which the justices just absolutely ripped to shreds. Because again, like you said, uh, Justice Kavanaugh said that $6,000 is, is, you know, is not enough for a student athlete when the NCAA was saying that $6,000 is too much. I want to point out, though, Justice Alito who had maybe the worst dig at the NCAA when he said this. And this is a long quote, so I'm quoting from his words from the hearings this morning. They, referring to what he called powerhouse football and basketball programs, bring in billions of dollars. As Justice Thomas mentioned, this money funds enormous salaries for coaches and others in huge athletic departments, but the athletes themselves have had a pretty hard life. They face training requirements that leave less little time or energy for study, constant pressure to put sports above study, pressure to drop out of hard majors and hard classes, and really shocking graduation rates. Only a tiny percentage ever go on to make any money in professional sports. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and they're cast aside without even a college degree. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? I think that's an incredible line from Judge Alito or Justice Alito because it really just drove a stake through the heart of the NCAA argument. And there's one thing that was not present in this courtroom. One argument that I have been thinking about this entire time, and I want to point it out to everyone. The debate continually focuses on those student athletes who are receiving a scholarship and what benefits they can receive, right? You talk about, hey, you are playing college basketball and I am giving you a scholarship. We are, we are square. Well, there are thousands of student athletes who are not on scholarship but are still subject to the same rules as those who are. A walk-on, for example, they pay, you know, it, it, not necessarily in all cases, but in most cases, a walk-on to a basketball team or a football team 
is paying tuition just like a normal college student. But for example, they cannot take money from boosters the same way, the same as a star scholarship athlete can. A walk-on who pays his or her own way and pay, plays an NCAA sport is still subject to those rules. So the NCAA has to really, they had a really hard time at arguing this. But here is the, here's the situation. Do not listen to these arguments that are in the Supreme Court and think, oh, there's no way that the Supreme Court can rule against the players. Here's why. The Supreme Court doesn't necessarily like to tip their hand in what they're thinking. We have to kind of get into their mind and assume what they're thinking. They've done their research. They've done the questions. But the questions that they're asking may not be necessarily to rip to shreds one side. It may be because they want to hear the argument. They want to hear the devil's advocate. And they want to hear the explanation in the holes of the arguments of both sides. It wasn't that they just grilled the NCAA. The lawyers for Austin also were grilled on certain aspects of their arguments that they found flaws in. There are so many procedural reasons and other precedent that need to be weighed here that could have the Supreme Court either rule in favor of the NCAA or just they could even send the case back down to the lower court with further guidance on how to proceed there and not issue a full ruling. So there's a lot of ways that the Supreme Court could take this. Prepare to be prepare to be disappointed because at this because at the end of this we may not get the ruling that we think we are getting based on these arguments. And and I want to be clear about something the the judges did display um, some degree of concern for completely blowing up the amateur model. And in fact, one of the things that everyone who listened to this, these arguments said, it was very interesting how keenly aware the justices are to the realities of college athletics. I mean, we may think the, these folks up in their ivory tower at, at the Supreme Court headquarters don't pay any attention to college sports. Boy, they either did a ton of good research, which they probably did, or they are actually aware of the issues involved here because they demonstrated a lot of knowledge about this stuff. And, and I want to point out something very, very important. The, the outcome here will determine how college athletes are compensated, but, but they're not really talking about should they be paid anything extra? Should they be paid a salary? The question here is, are there other things that schools can do involving education that they could provide to these athletes in terms of like scholarship for postgraduate study, extra money for tutoring, study abroad opportunities, and other payments like that, it, buying them computers and school supplies and the such. So it's not, should we pay these athletes? Should we allow them, you know, this is not name, image, and likeness. Should we allow them to sell advertising and things like that? This is, are there other things related to education that we can provide to these athletes? That's the important thing to remember about this case. But if they aside with Alston and they agree and the Supreme Court agrees to provide those things, it will become the Wild West. I mean, you can imagine programs saying, hey, come here and we'll pay for you to do all the grad school that you want. We'll pay for you to, to fly overseas and, and you know, take this fabulous educational trip, you know, to China or wherever else. It, it'll be really interesting to see how, how that all works out. And, and real quickly, I don't think I mean, the Wild West is is. I know it's a kind of a broad term, but it also indicates that there's just going to be no rules. There's obviously going to be rules that kind of come with this with this decision that they make. If they rule in favor of the NCAA, if they rule in favor of, of the Austin side, there's still going to be kind of rules that come about this or some guidance for them to say, hey, we can't govern this area. So it would then go to the state 
legislatures and ultimately Congress to figure out what those rules will be. It may be the NCAA that has a part in it, but really what this is about, this is about figuring out what the guidance is going to be for state legislatures who we've talked about in the past and Congress to ultimately come up with a set of rules to make it so that it's standard across the board for everyone and that everyone has the same equal chance to get paid or not, depending on what the result of this case is. I think between this case and all the news that came out over the last year about the the uh, pay for play scandal for getting you know rich kids into into all kinds of fancy colleges and look we're we're, we're Duke alumni we're not we're not like outside of this bubble we're inside this bubble in 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 a variety of ways but all of that news is about to spiral into into this whole discussion where we're going to hear a lot about the changing nature of the relationship between colleges and the high schoolers that they are trying to get to come uh, be students at their university because you know the the universities ultimately are just like businesses where they are trying to get top talent in they are trying to entice people to to do things you know their way and not and not the way that their their competition wants them and what's interesting to me is Jason I think you were talking about how there's going to be all this sort of realignment around the incentives that, that schools are throwing at at different um, different types of athletes and and different schools are going to have are going to come to 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 different approaches. You can see this in the, in the history of college sports, where schools like University of Chicago that used to have big time college sports programs ultimately went away from it because they decided it either wasn't in their mission or or it wasn't going to be the best way for them to develop their own brand. I think you're going to see a lot of new avenues that, that schools take regarding athletics and how that plays in with the rest of the university as a result of this case. If uh, things get decided in favor of, of Alston and, and against the NCAA. And make no mistake, the colleges are already well-versed in how to do this because let's not act like they aren't doing this to regular students. They have recruitments. They have saying like, hey, you know, and it's not necessarily, you know, you can recruit people who are good in science or good in math or good in song or good in religion or whoever. You can recruit any student that you want. And they offer the world to some of these students, travel to some of their competitions, travel to showcase their talent all around the world, jobs on campus, jobs off campus, you know, summer internships, all of these things that they are offering normal students and they don't get to offer or are not allowed to offer to people who have athlete after the word student. So if you, I think that is where the, the rules are going to kind of need to be honed in a little bit. If you, look at the sort of financial breakdown of, of how a university operates, the full price tuition that that is like the sort of sticker price for, for a school is only being paid by, is only being paid in full by people who can really afford it. Most people who are going to a particular college are getting some kind of financial aid, especially at top colleges like schools like Duke, or they're getting some kind of scholarship or like some some portion of that is being paid for by um, by sort of the, the full freight students because the schools are trying to build a diverse community. They are trying to have all these different programs going on at once because they want to be the biggest and the best. And not even not even all of the students who can pay in fr- full freight do it because some people, they, it's just a give and take. Sometimes the school says, hey, I'll give this person a scholarship because they want, even though more. I know they can pay because they want them at the school, but also because they say, Hey, because they will then have Duke university or the university of Michigan or the university of Alabama attached to them. 
they will then donate money back to the school and the money down the road is way is worth way more to them than the money that I'm going to get from them in a tuition check. It is a much bigger calculation than just this one player coming to be the running back or, or, or what have you. So there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, we just began to scratch the surface of it, but we wanted all of you to know a little bit about this really significant thing that is going on right now that really potentially could change the shape of college athletics. Uh, we, th- it's expected that we will get a ruling from the Supreme Court probably sometime in June. The Supreme Court takes a recess usually uh, over the summer, and, and uh, it's widely expected that we'll get a ruling on this sometime in there. It, it'll be crazy. When it happens, it's, it's going to, you know, it, I, I think most people expect this will, to some extent, break college sports, and, and it'll have to be remade in some kind of other way. But this has been coming for a while. College athletics has existed for a long, long time under rules that probably didn't make sense given you know where the money was and, and where the sport was. Uh, name, image, image, and likeness is coming, and this is also coming to to change the way the sports are played. And we will keep on following it and telling you about it, you know, in our in our own passionate and somewhat mildly informed way. In the case of Donald, well informed, I think. <laughs> but that's going to do it for us here on this latest episode, episode 301 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. For Donald and Sam, I am Jason. And a reminder to you, we have just launched and starting on Friday this week, Friday, April 2nd, will be the first episode of Return to Glory, my special series, 20 years celebrating the 2001 Duke basketball team that won a national title. Guys, I have listened to some of this show. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't make it. Jason made it. It's awesome. Like you heard, you heard in that promo, hopefully you, you, you saw the promo in your feeds that Jason put out yesterday and that was cool. And the actual shows are going to be even cooler. So definitely check those out. I'm really so, looking forward to it. Just, just in the sense that I, I lived that year. And so it was great to kind of know, I know some of the stories, but even some of the things that Jason has been able to uncover are things that even I didn't know as a student on campus and having, you know, interacted or known some of these players. So it's really, it's going to be really fascinating. I can't wait to listen to it. If you enjoyed the last dance, this is like the last (laughs) dance for the 2001 Duke team. Uh, Yeah, maybe to some extent. I I think the last dance had a few more producers on it than than I did. And had video, but other (laughs) than that. And had Jordan, but we don't want Jordan. No, but we have have Shane. We have Shane Battier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We win. Uh, so I, I will tell you, you know, as, as, in terms of a tease, there are unbelievable, I mean, crazy stories of stuff that I never would have imagined. Um, and we're going to be revealing it over the course of the next several weeks, you know, over the course of this entire summer, as we drop uh, these podcasts, uh, look for it here in the DBR podcast feed. Again, they'll all be labeled return to glory, because that is what this is about. It's celebrating 20 years since Duke's national title in 2001. And, and that entire team was very open and honest with me in talking about what that season was like. I, I know you all are going to love it almost as much as I enjoyed putting it together. But like I said, we're wrapping it up here. This is episode 301. We are all done. All that has to happen now is for the Duke band to play us out and take us home. <laughs> <laughs>